through verse 23. It's Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14 and continuing all the way through verse 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Remember who you are. These words are spoken by Mufasa to Simba, his son, in The Lion King. It's a pivotal point in the story. It's after his father's death, Simba had ran away. He went off into the wilderness seeking a life that was free from responsibilities. He wanted a life without worries. But eventually, he's confronted by the memory of his father. And this memory encourages Simba to recover his purpose, to defeat the evil that's overtaken overtaken his father's kingdom. This is the moment that Simba becomes who he was supposed to be by remembering who he is, the son of Mufasa, the heir to the kingdom, the heir to the throne. Remember who you are, Mufasa tells him. If Simba can just remember who he is, then he'll have the courage, the conviction to do what's necessary. And it's by remembering who you are that you can avoid the perception that you are something that you aren't. Hypocrisy comes about when we say or declare that we are something that we are not. You can avoid hypocrisy. You can cure yourself of hypocrisy by remembering who you actually are, who you truly are. Jesus presents a similar solution to his disciples in our text today to uh, Simba's problem, to the problem that we have of religious hypocrisy. He doesn't tell them that they can avoid being hypocrites by doing certain things or by acting in certain ways. He reminds them who they truly are way down deep. Because the problem with hypocrisy oftentimes is our actions, but it's not always our actions. Sometimes the problem with hypocrisy is that we have a wrong belief. It's that we are presenting ourselves as one thing and then acting as another. He reminds the disciples who they truly are way down deep. And while Jesus' reminder isn't nearly as uplifting or as encouraging as Mufasa's is in The Lion King, I think that the way we respond to the possibility of hypocrisy actually says some powerful things about the gospel, if we'll listen. If we'll pay attention. So from our text today, what we can see are two reminders that Jesus gives his disciples against hypocrisy. Two reminders against hypocrisy in the text. The first reminder is that we should remember defiling sin is in us, not outside of us. Defiling sin is in you. It's not something that's outside of you. That's the first reminder he gives to his disciples. He said this specifically to the outwardly righteous, verse 14. 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. These were the same people that we were talking about last week who had ceremonial rules about washing themselves before dinner, about washing pots and couches, and had many such things that they did. This was a crowd of the same Pharisees from last week, but also the normal people who were just simply watching the conflict. And he called them to him specifically to say what he says here in this text. He says, hear and understand. He doesn't accuse them of being hypocrites and then give them a long list of things that they need to do better on. He doesn't give them a long list of all the ways that they are acting like hypocrites. He calls them to himself and then says the things that we're going to see in this text. He tells them where their sin comes from. He says, this is your real problem. He wanted to make sure that they knew this, that the cure for hypocrisy isn't better practice, but a new man. The cure to being a hypocrite isn't just doing better It's being made new. You're found to be clean before God, not by finally actually doing everything right. So that your words and your deeds match up perfectly. That you're able to perfectly follow the law, the traditions, the commandments that God has given you. That's not how you stop becoming a hypocrite. You stop becoming a hypocrite by being made new in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the cure for hypocrisy. Not because coming to Christ makes you perfect. Not because Christians become perfect in that instant. That they are always going to live a perfect life. That they never sin again. That's not why the gospel is the cure for hypocrisy. That Christians are not sinners anymore. But the gospel is the cure for hypocrisy because when you come to Christ, your understanding and your message shift. Hopefully your life also shifts, but your message is immediately different. You see, the often unseen problem with Christians being hypocrites, and we have that reputation. If you ask people in the world, are Christians hypocrites or not, they are likely going to say yes. True or not, that's what they're going to say. That's our perception. And the problem with that that people usually point to is they'll say, so Christians need to act better. They need to do better. They need to be better people. And we should. We should be holy as God is holy. But I think the core problem behind our hypocrisy isn't just our actions. It's our message. Yes, our actions should line up with, it, with what God has commanded us. Absolutely true. But to be a Christian is to say publicly and clearly that you do not act as God has commanded you to. That you are not someone who is perfect. We confess our sin. That's part of how you become a Christian. By saying that you're a sinner. You declare it clearly, truthfully. To be a Christian is in some ways to shout from the rooftops, I am a sinner who violates the clear commands of God all the time. And yet, in spite of my sin. Because of the love God has shown to me in sending Jesus Christ to live the perfect life I could not live. The perfect life I would not live. To die the death that I deserve to die. And then to come back to life to give me a new life. To make me a new creation through repentance and faith. I am a Christian and I am a child of God all the same. Even in spite of my sin. That though I am a sinner... 
I have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. If that is our message, how could we ever be accused of hypocrisy? How could anyone rightfully and truthfully look at us and say, you are a hypocrite? Because we're starting from a place of our own sin. We acknowledge that we're sinners on day one. We can't be hypocrites and also have the gospel. Our message and understanding is that we are sinners. So when we're hypocrites, we're not so merely by being sinners. That's baked in. That's part of it. That's part of who we were. We're hypocrites when we stop acknowledging that we're sinners. When we forget that sin is in us, not merely outside of us. And Jesus wasn't saying this in verse 14 to condemn them, but to reveal the better way to them. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. He doesn't just declare it to beat them down with it. He declares it that they might be changed by it, that they might understand it. His desire is that they will hear and understand. He wants them to stop their hypocrisy out of love for them. He wants their understanding, not their shame. You see, we can often hear how sinful we are and then respond in guilt and shame. But that's not the final response. That's not the proper response. The proper response when we hear our own sin is repentance and faith. Yes, repentance requires acknowledging our own guilt. And this guilt should be reckoned with. It can't be skipped over. We can't just get over sin to skip to some kind of goodness on the other end. We have to deal with the sin. But the way that we deal with the sin isn't by wallowing in shame, by wallowing in guilt. We deal with the sin by repenting of it. By confessing our faith in Jesus who came to rid us of our sin. Repentance requires acknowledging our own guilt. It has to be reckoned with. It can't be skipped over. We have to stare our sinfulness in the face. And as much as I'm going to tell you over and over today that we shouldn't stay in our sin, that the key is to move on to the gospel, I think some of us tend to do that a little bit too quickly. There should be a little bit more sackcloth and ashes in our lives. I think a lot of us become hypocrites not when we commit major sins, calamitous sins, crazy sins, sins that are going to get you on the news. I think a lot of us become hypocrites when we commit really minor sins, what we would call minor in a worldly sense, and then we just don't care. Yeah, I did that, but big deal. It's not that big a deal. It's no different than anyone else. I think that's where a lot of our hypocrisy lies. It doesn't lie in half of us in this room secretly being murderers. It lies in half of us in this room secretly being really mean. Secretly being people who lie routinely. I think that's where our hypocrisy tends to uh, rear its ugly head. We should grieve over our sin more than I think we usually do. Every sin is grievous. It's a big deal. And I think our hypocrisy often lies in what we would call minor sins. So we should grieve over those. We should repent in sackcloth and ashes over those. But we shouldn't just stay there. Once we grieve over our sin, once we are ashamed of our sin and see the guilt of our sin, we don't stay there. The Christian who responds to her sin in faith and repentance, for them, grief is not where you live regarding your sin. You move on. You have a time of grief, 
of sorrow, of feeling bad, of maybe a a tinge of shame. But then you look to the cross and you remember that all that's been taken care of. All that shame can be gone. That Christ and his sacrifice has dealt with even that sin. The right response when we are confronted with our sin is to look to the cross and see the goodness of God in dealing with your sin for you so that you didn't have to stay in your guilty state. Rightly considered, our sin should only lead us back to the worship of the God who saved us from our sin. It shouldn't lead us just to more uh, sin, just to more shame, just to more guilt. But sin, which is inside you, is your problem. That's what he says in verse 15. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The sin that is in you is your problem. Nothing outside of you is the reason you are sinful. You are the reason you are sinful. Because sin is in you. It's not outside of you. There are no spiritual scapegoats that you can blame for your dirty soul. There's no one else you can blame for your sin. There's nowhere else you can point. It's not their problem. It's your problem. And you are the problem. Your parents may have done a real number on you. But they can't be your excuse. You have been wronged by people, by the world, by systems. But you've been wronged because the people who wronged you are evil, just like you were. The world is evil. But we can't blame our sin on the world. Because the world is filled with people just like you, just like me. The world can't be our excuse. James 1, uh, 14 and 15 gets to this idea. Says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see where the sin started? In our own desires. That our own desires gave way to sin. It's not something that came at us from the outside, it's something that's in us. Your sin starts in you. In your own desire. It's not a disease that you catch from other people. You are the carrier of sin. You're patient zero. Sin is a contaminant that you are spewing on everyone around you all the time. You don't have to be infected by it. You're the one who is doing the infecting. And while this truth that uh, you are the one who's sinful when you go out into the world. While that truth can be applied thousands of ways. I think a clear option is for us to think through how it should impact our evangelism. If we are sinful people going out into a world full of sinful people, there's nothing that should stop us from getting to them. Oftentimes we get the idea that we can't go out there and be among the people. We can't be among the world because that's going to make us dirty. That's going to make us sinful. I can't be around those types of people. I I can't talk to that kind of person because they're sinful and I'm supposed to be holy. But I think that's a misunderstanding of who we are. That we're the one who's bringing sin to them just as they're bringing it to us. The only difference between us and them is that we have the gospel. So we have to give them that difference of the gospel. We have to take that message to them. An understanding of our own sin should give us the license to be around sinners as Jesus was without the fear that their sin is going to somehow spread to us. We often think of it as like 
the whole world is full of mud and we just put on some really nice white shoes. We can't go out there. I've got to keep them inside. That way they'll, they'll stay white. They'll stay clean. But when we think that way, we forget that our feet were muddy before we put them in the shoes. We were out there surrounded by mud. And then someone gave us those white shoes. So we have to go out and give it back to them. That's how we deal with sin in the world. We can't think of it as something that infects us. We have to remember that we were the sinful ones before the gospel. Now, I have to take a brief pause here in the flow of the sermon to talk about something that has very little to do with anything else that we're going to talk about today. Uh, That's because if you notice in the verses that I read and what is probably on the screen behind me, uh, there is no verse 16 here. In my Bible, it goes from 15 to 17. In yours, it may do the same thing. If you have a, a KG, KJV, a King James Version, an HCSB, an NASB, an NKJV, you may still have verse 16 here, but I don't. I've got 15 and then I have 17. And I have to explain that. Because if I don't, and you understand it and see it, it can be a really scary thing, right? Every once in a while, I'll see a, a, a meme, a, a picture, a, a post that goes around Facebook or Twitter on the Internet in an email. And it says something like this. Alert. They're deleting God's words from Scripture. Some company has bought up the people who make the Bible, and now they are just picking verses out and getting rid of them one by one. They're coming for your Bible. So what you need to do right now is go home and grab the King James Bible. That's the oldest one you can find and put it in a safe because they can't take that one from you. It's right there. Don't let them take away verse 16 from you. That's the word of God. Make sure they don't come for your Bible. This is how it starts. Now verse 16 is gone and some in a few years they are going to get rid of 15 and 17 too. And then they're just going to go over and over and over until you don't have a Bible left. That's how the post usually goes. And I have to admit, the first time I read it, I was scared out of my mind. I had no idea what they were talking about. I assumed they were just lying, but then I went and looked and I said, oh no, I don't have verse 16. Maybe they really are coming from my Bible. But I don't think that's what's happening here. What happened to verse 16 and why isn't it there? Where did it go? Well, what used to be verse 16, which you probably have in a footnote, what it says is, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Why would they come for that one? Of all the things in Scripture that are controversial, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Surely that's pretty low on the list, right? So why would they come for that verse? Why did that one get cut? Why do the corporations not want us to read that phrase, especially when they left it in Mark 4, 23, which says the same thing? Why get rid of one and not the other? What is the deal with their macho head games? And are we just pawns in the midst of all these people who are coming after our scripture? I don't think that's what happened. Let me try to briefly explain what likely happened and why verse 16 isn't in this particular version that I am reading from today. Around AD 60, the year 60, Mark wrote his gospel. And the pages that Mark wrote eventually were lost. The actual handwriting of Mark 
we don't have. But before they were lost, somebody made a copy of it by hand. And then they distributed it. And then someone made a copy of that copy, and they distributed it. And someone made a copy of that copy, and they distributed it. And then once you get to the hundredth copy, that's roughly, probably, what we have when we reconstruct our Bible today in the original language. We have the fragments, and we put it all together. And what we have are copies of copies. And somewhere along the way, what probably happened is that someone, when they made a copy, made a mistake. They had their pages out of order. They thought they had heard that this was supposed to be here, so then they put it in. And then now that mistake is there, and it's being copied over and over and over again. And somewhere, after, sometime after that mistake was created, somebody came in and divided the Bible into verses. Your Bible wasn't written in these verses. Mark didn't write it and thinking this is going to be Mark seven sixteen. He wrote it in just as a paragraph. Someone later made it into verses. But then, eventually, we figured out that there was a mistake because we found earlier copies that didn't have that verse 16 in there. But now it's already called verse 16. We call the mistake verse 16. What are we going to do with it? So eventually, enough people decided that the earlier, better copies, which didn't have verse 16, mean that that is actually Scripture, and the verse 16 copy is not Scripture. So the deletion of verse 16 isn't an attempt to take out a verse of Scripture. It's an attempt to fix someone else's mistake that they were pretty sure accidentally added to Scripture. And I know I said that the the post was scary and that this isn't, but that's kind of scary, right? If there could be a mistake there, where else could there be a mistake? If Mark 7, 16 isn't supposed to be there, how do we know John 3, 16 is supposed to be there? Let me just try to give you two thoughts to comfort you in this area. First of all, No major Christian belief is affected by any of the issues that deal with anything I just talked about. There are some verses in Scripture that are not there anymore because we're pretty sure they weren't actually Scripture. There are some verses that you're going to have a footnote that says some manuscripts add these words. There are some passages, which the reason I'm talking about this now in Mark chapter 7 is because when we get to Mark 16, we're going to have to talk about it again. There are some passages that may or may not be supposed to be there. So it can be confusing. But no major Christian belief is affected by any of these issues. Whenever a verse is removed or a passage is in question, none of that ever has to do with something major concerning our faith. Anytime something major is concerned, we have that major thing on good authority from plenty of other places in Scripture. There's nothing that is standing or falling on the verses that are in question here. Even without that one time, that place that may or may not be there, we still know Jesus is God. Even without some of these other verses that come into question, we still know he rose from the dead. No major Christian belief is affected by any of these issues. And the other thought that should comfort you is that this should actually give you confidence in the rest of your Bible. I know that sounds counterintuitive, that if now some verses may or may not be supposed to be there, how am I supposed to trust everything else? But the fact that everything else is still there means you should trust it even more. No one is blindly putting verses in your Bible. Everything is here on purpose. The many people who compiled, printed, translated, and reprinted the Bible to get it in your lap 
whether it has verse 16 or not, they decided that every verse that is in there is supposed to be in there. And even more so, they tell you if they think they may possibly be wrong. You can trust every word of what's in front of you because it's scripture. Because it made the cut. Nothing happened by accident. What's still there is still there. You can trust this book when you read it. Now, I know that had almost nothing to do with religious hypocrisy today. But I think it's important for us to know that so that we can trust this book and so that when we come to the end of Mark, we can understand what's going on there. But our problem today isn't the deletion of verse 16. Our problem today is indwelling sin. And Christians can often forget this fact. Look at verse 17. When he had entered the house and left the, par- left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now that we've dealt with the lack of verse 16, we can move on to verse 17, where the disciples just don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Those closest to Jesus weren't able to understand that the sin inside of them is the problem which leads to their defilement. They had to change the way they thought about these things in order to conform themselves to the truth. Christians, disciples, can misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. So it's okay if you haven't thought this way before about sin, about where it lies, where it comes from, whether it's in you or outside of you. Even those who trust Jesus can forget this fact, can misunderstand it. That sin is found in the soul. Look at verses 18 and 19. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. He's making clear to them that sin is found in the soul. It's not what you take in. Jesus is speaking specifically here about foods being clean and unclean, about foods being holy and unholy. He's talking about the unnecessary ceremonial washings that the disciples had forsaken, which we talked about last week. But they were focused on the physical. They were focused on the external. They were thinking that they could somehow avoid defilement. Somehow they could avoid sin merely by avoiding taking those things into their body. But Jesus is telling them that it makes no difference what they eat or drink because that merely passes through them. It doesn't enter into who they actually are. It doesn't affect their soul, their hearts. He's saying, you guys are really caught up in all this talk about food and washing and form and tradition. But you're not thinking about actual sin, where that comes from, what that affects. Don't think about what may enter your stomach. Think about what's in your heart. Sin lives in your soul. It is killing you from the inside out. So maybe we should focus on that just a little bit more. And a little bit less on the form. A little bit less on the food. Because the second reminder that he gives to his disciples is that they should remember that they are capable of great evil. You, right now, Christian or not, are capable of great evil. It's what you produce. Look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. That which comes out of us is what defiles us. The sin is within you, and it's revealed by your actions. It's what you produce. It's what you make. You don't catch sin from someone else. You are already a host for it. John Calvin once said, 
The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. It's a perpetual factory of idols. Like a car factory makes cars, our mind makes idols. A human being is a factory of sin. It's what we make. It's what we produce over and over and over. It's what comes out of us. And what we produce is revealed by what comes out of us. Matthew 7, verses 16 through 18. It's talking about this same idea. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So the list of sins that Jesus gets to here, which is produced out of the heart of man, reveals the sinful nature of man. That if we are capable of these things, it's because of who we are as sinners. We are capable of great evil. And that is revealed by what comes out of us. The great philosopher Batman once said, in a quote which required a lot more nuance than he gave before he jumped off the roof, he said, It's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. Well, he actually said, It's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. And not to disagree with the Cape Crusader, But I think a more accurate idea would have been to say that what you do doesn't define you, but it does reveal you. You are more than your actions. You're more than the sum total of the things that you have done. But the sum total of the things that you have done actually typically shows who you actually are. It's not who you are underneath, but what you do that reveals you. Particularly if you are justified in Christ... You are more than your actions, but you are revealed by those same actions. We know that we are sinful beings because we produce sin. And apart from Christ, we produce only sin. The mark of a true Christian, however, isn't just someone who stops sinning because we haven't stopped sinning. The mark of a true Christian is someone who responds to the sin that they see in themselves with repentance With faith. A true Christian isn't someone who claims to have asked forgiveness that one time. A true Christian is someone who daily repents. Who daily dies to themselves. Who follows Christ each and every day. Doing the good deeds that God has prepared in advance for them to do. Namely, spreading his gospel. Giving those white shoes to the world around us. A true Christian responds with repentance and faith when he's confronted by the sin that he produces. And the sin he produces is a great amount of evil. It's calamitous. And Christ gives us a list of that sin in the rest of our passage. This list is what comes out of a man. It's what comes out of his heart. The inner essence of his soul. This is what we are capable of. Even now. First of all, evil thoughts. Okay, well, that's just a big umbrella term, right? Evil thoughts covers a lot of things, and we're capable of that. For anything and everything evil, we are capable of it. Sexual immorality. There is not a person in this room, no matter their age, who has not or will not commit some sort of sexual immorality. We have deviant thoughts, each and every one of us. Everyone in this room 
is sexually immoral in some sense, at some point, at some time. It doesn't mean you always act on it. That doesn't mean that your sexual immorality looks the same as someone else's. But there is one person who is sexually immoral and his name was Jesus. Sexually moral. <laughs> sexually moral, perfectly, absolutely moral, and his name was Jesus. Remember that I fixed that. Uh, theft. Everyone in this room is stolen. Okay, I don't know if it was when you were four and you took something that uh, was on the shelf because you wanted it and you didn't understand theft, but that was, still, that was still stealing. If you have been late, you have stolen time from the people you told you were going to be on time. We're all thieves. Murder. Jesus called anger in your heart equivalent with murder. In that sense, we're all murderers. Adultery. First of all, this happens more than you might think. And we're all spiritual adulterers to our God daily. Jesus said, if you've looked upon a woman lustfully with your eyes and you've committed adultery in your heart, we're all adulterers. Coveting. It's painfully apparent in our consumeristic society that we are coveters. We want what other people have. Wickedness. Another just big umbrella term. It's in case you forgot that evil thoughts described you, you can remember that wickedness, just some kind of bad thing, that also describes you. Deceit, constantly avoiding the truth, twisting it, manipulating it, trying to get our way by making something which is not actually true seem as if it is true. Sensuality, okay, so maybe not quite to acting on sexual immorality, not quite to adultery, but it's flirting with it. Sensuality. Envy. If you thought coveting didn't get you, envy probably does. Maybe you don't actually want their thing, but you wish you had something like what they had. Slander. To needlessly speak poorly about someone or say something that we weren't positive was true. Now, I know no one in this church has ever in their entire life possibly slandered someone else. Slander. Pride. There's some people who say that pride and idolatry are the root of all sin. That everything we do is actually from a root of pride and idolatry. And I like how he finishes the list, foolishness. In case you thought pride didn't get you, then you have shown yourself to be foolish. Foolishness. He put it last in case someone read pride and thought, you know what? Nope, still not me. I made it through that whole thing. Scot-free, scot-clean. When you think through that list, my guess is you remembered specific sins that came up with each one. And you thought, man, those wicked, evil things come out of my heart. But when you think through that list, I want to remind you that the primary difference between a religious hypocrite, who we talked about last week, And a true Christian isn't just whether you commit or have committed these sins on this list. Yes, eventually in your Christian walk, these categories should not describe you in full. They should describe you less and less. You should look more holy, more like Christ throughout your life. But the primary difference between a true Christian and a religious hypocrite is whether you acknowledge those sins you've committed or not. A religious hypocrite reads that list and says, nope, not me. A true Christian says, every single one of them, 
And yet he died for me all the same. Yet in his eyes, I am free and clear, righteous and holy all the same. That because of the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf, I have his perfection. So that list doesn't define me. I am more than that list. Because I have put my faith and hope and trust in who Christ is and what he's done. It's whether you turn to God in repentance and faith when you commit these sins. Whether you see these sins as part of your sinful nature or whether you're daily putting them to death. Whether you see these sins as something other people commit. I hope that guy heard whenever he talked about pride. Or whether you remember that you are the one who carries sin around with you. They don't infect you with it. You bring it to them. All this week, I think two or three times, different days, my wife has asked me, what do I do about last week's sermon? I talked about what is a religious hypocrite for four points, 30-ish minutes, and then I just stopped. I didn't say what to do if you're a religious hypocrite. I didn't say how to stop being one. And my answer to her all week was, come to church on Sunday. I'll tell you. Because I think these reminders are how we avoid religious hypocrisy. I think Jesus is actually being pretty practical when he's saying, remember that sin is in you and remember what you are capable of. We avoid being hypocrites by those reminders. But I want to make it a little bit more practical. So when you think you may be a religious hypocrite, I think here is directly, immediately how you can respond. First of all, I think you can confess your sin. That's the mark of a true Christian is when they see sin, they respond with confession and repentance and faith. So confess your sin. Pray. If you need to do it out loud, I would encourage you to do so. Say out loud to God the specific sins that you've committed. And if you can't remember them, ask him to reveal them to you. Don't just say, ah, whatever, all my sins. I'm guilty of that more than... I would like to uh, explain to you guys. But list your sins. Be cognizant of your sins. He'll reveal them to you. Say specifically the sins you committed. And then acknowledge who you are. Say out loud that you are a sinner. Not just that you have committed these sins, but that you are a sinner. You are not someone who slandered that one time. You are a slanderer. You're not someone who committed adultery that one time by looking on a woman lustfully. You are an adulterer. You're not just someone who got angry and committed murder in your heart. You are a murderer. Acknowledge who you are. But then look to Christ. Say out loud who Christ is. Remember what he's done for you. Remember that he came not to bring the righteous but sinners to repentance. Remember who Christ is and what he's done. Look to him and his cross that even religious hypocrites can be saved when they look at the sacrifice of Christ and then repent. Resolve to keep staring at Christ until the sins which surround you start to fall away. Until the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Kill the sin in you daily by being filled with the Spirit by pressing on after Christ.
Repent. And then preach the gospel. Get your message right. We are not Christians because we stopped sinning. We are Christians because we have put our faith, hope, and trust in who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. We have repented and we have faith. That's what makes us Christians. So we preach that gospel to the people around us. We remember that we are Christians because we believe Christ died for our sins so that now we don't have to walk in those sins. That's the message we bring. That's how we avoid hypocrisy. We remember that defiling sin is in us, not outside of us. We remember that we are capable of great evil, even the great evil that we see on this list. So then when we actually see that we are hypocrites, we have those reminders that we should move forward confessing our sin, acknowledging who we are, looking to Christ, repenting, and then preaching the true gospel. That's what we do when we encounter our sin. That's why Mark wrote it for us. All the verses that we see here to point us to the gospel over and over and over. We can avoid hypocrisy not by being better, but by remembering who we are. That though we were sinners, if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. That's how we avoid hypocrisy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to repent of our hypocrisy. Thank you for showing us all the ways in which we are hypocrites. Thank you for being so holy that you can make us holy. Thank you for dealing with the people as sinful as we are. Thank you for showing us our sins, calling us to repentance, calling us to faith. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin, but actually making us holy in your sight, justifying us in your sight. May we repent of our sin today. May we confess our sin today. May we acknowledge who we are in you today. Let us look to you today and every day, repenting of our sin and preaching the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.